everyone, including myself, has an ego and they want to be successful. But I think like you can't really be successful if your company fails. So I think founders put their companies above their own egos most of the time. I think the bigger challenge is just thinking about like what are you doing that you shouldn't be doing, or what should you be doing that you're not doing yet. I think there are a lot of myths in venture. <laughs> so like a lot of you know these truisms where people talk about doing pro rata or like following the best funds, and I think there's like some logic behind them, but a lot of times people aren't following that advice because of the logic behind it. They follow it because everyone says they should follow it. I wish I was good enough to start like a unicorn company, but I don't think I am. So I'd rather just like work with people who are doing that and try to help them out. Hello, and welcome to Venture Confidential, a series of conversations with top minds in venture capital. I'm your host, Peter Chapman. In today's episode, I interview Leo Polovitz, founding partner at Sousa Ventures. We talk about the relationship between pro rata and fund size, we talk about how Leo evaluates companies based on what's most risky for them. And we talk about the tension between remaining open to possibility and maintaining a specific focus in investing. As always, if you've got questions or want to be in touch, email me at vc at heavybit.com. All right, Leo, welcome to Venture Confidential. Thanks, great to be here. I try to prepare for these by reading as much writing as I can that my guests have written and I gotta be honest, I'm still working through your blog. My bad. I, I need to write more succinctly. So, you got a ton of content. What spawned the blog? I think a lot of it just came from when I joined the industry about five, six years ago. I felt like there were a lot of things I wanted to know about that I didn't see people writing about. Or when I talked to founders, they asked a lot of the same questions that, you know, if, again, like I felt like there was an answer, and you know, if you asked an insider, they knew the answer, but you couldn't just go Google and be like, you know, how much money should I raise or something like that. Mm. Uh, so that was a lot of what inspired the the blog. Let's start there. You had a a long career as a software engineer, and then got into venture six years ago. What prompted that move? It was kind of you know just a series of coincidences. So what happened was I was at two startups early on when they were both. You know, roughly a dozen people or so when I joined, and I liked that phase of the companies a lot. And so I was there when they grew from you know twelve, fifteen people to maybe fifty, sixty. Mm. And when I was leaving the last company, which was about five and a half years ago, uh, I'd been there for four years. You know, really enjoyed it, but felt like I wanted to do something else. And specifically, I was thinking of starting a company. But there's people that you know will kind of just like drop out of high school or college or whatever, dive in, figure it out. And then there's other people that are on the opposite side of the spectrum where they like to overprepare. So I'm definitely on that side of the spectrum. So I felt like you know I'd seen this 15 to 50 phase, but I didn't really know what it was like when you just had like one or two founders or one or two founders and a couple of people. So I wanted to learn more about that. And basically, what happened is like a week after I left this job that I had, one of my friends came up to me and said, "Hey, I'm starting the seed fund with a couple other people." All the other three people were on the business side, and they wanted somebody on the technical side to do like tech due diligence, kind of evaluate the you know the technical founders. And so I thought this is great. Like I'll do this for six months or a year. You know, kind of meet investors, learn what pitching is like, meet a lot of founders in those early stages, and then I'll go start a company. And then you know, six twelve months turn into like two years, and then three years, and now it's been five and a half. And I ended up really liking it, and also feeling like the really good founders I met were much better than I would have been. So I you know I. Wish I was good enough to start like a unicorn company, but I don't think I am. So I'd rather just like work with people who are doing that and try to help them out. I love that you say you were hired to do technical diligence because one of your early posts was about the futility of technical diligence for early stage companies. Yeah, I learned that lesson pretty quickly. I mean, I think 
the thing I discovered just basically in my first few months was well, there's twofold. One is I think the market at seed stage doesn't really support tech due diligence because there's so many people, so many investors that'll write a check after a meeting or two. That if I come up to a founder and say, "Hey, can I do like a four-hour deep dive on your architecture with your CTO?" They'll sort of be like, "No, you know, we're busy." Like the other fund wrote us a check after like an hour. You know, can you do that? Or like we'll move on to somebody else. So I think that was part of it. It was just hard to like to get founders to actually dedicate time to that. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I probably learned after the first year or two is basically none of the founders we worked with had a hard time building whatever they said they were going to build. What they had a hard time with. It was like figuring out what the right thing to build was, or like when they build it, how do you get the first couple of customers, or like if you never hired a salesperson before, how do you hire the first salesperson? So I think we just saw these challenges that were not tech related at all. So we've had a couple investments where like the technology is a risk, and we'll try to vet those more. Like we invested in a quantum computing company, mm. but you know probably ninety five percent or so of the companies invested in the technology is not really the risk. What else did you learn during those first couple of years? Your first gig in venture. I think there are a lot of myths in venture. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, like a lot of you know these truisms where people talk about doing pro rata or like following the best funds, and I think there's like some logic behind them. But a lot of times, people aren't following that advice because of the logic behind it. They follow it because everyone says they should follow it. Sorry, I don't actually know what myths you're referring to. Can you spell those out? So, for example, for pro rata and follow on, people always talk about that being like the really core thing that determines how well a fund does. Mm. And pro rata is basically like when you make an investment, you know, later rounds you get diluted, and so pro rata lets you keep your stake by putting more money in in future rounds. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this was like really drilled into me when we were raising our first seed fund, and like when we were looking at our first deals, everyone said like make sure you get pro rata rights, like mm. you know, make sure you reserve a lot for follow on. And I think maybe like a year or two into, you know, my venture career, I, I did some modeling and kind of realized like, well, actually, the equity in a company is so much cheaper at seed stage that. You know, for us, like if we're let's say we're saving like two thirds of our fund for follow-on, mm. it actually means like we're really a Series A fund that does some like you know small checks at seed, yeah. Than like a seed fund that's like really focused on seed, and I think the returns we've seen from like the initial checks are so much better than the follow-on checks at the Series A or B, especially at the best companies where they raise much higher valuations. And so I, th- I think you know we've kind of went from. Having a lot of reserves to being much more about, hey, we'll invest more up front. Like we try to work with you more up front. We try to help more up front. And then we'll do some follow on investing afterwards, but really focus on the upfront ownership. Where do you think this myth comes from? My guess is it's Series A investors. Uh huh. And the reason is so, like, we're a seed fund. We're usually buying, you know, five, seven, ten percent of a company for maybe 500K to a million dollars. And so at that stage, like, we can, you know, if we were going to buy 3%, we could offer instead to buy 6%. And often that's pretty doable. Uh, if we just pay, you know, twice as much money, I think if you're a Series A investor and you have, you know, 25% ownership target, you can't just double the amount and offer to buy 50% of a company because, you know, every founder would just say like, no, that's too dilutive. Mm. So for them, like they put in as much money as they can up front, which might be 25% ownership, and then there's still a lot more of the fund to deploy, and so they end up deploying it over like the Series B, C, D, and all the later stage rounds, and that's where the parada kicks in. That's my guess. You're saying. You get better returns if you deploy the earlier you deploy, mm-hmm. and Series A funds just can't deploy all of the capital just in Series A rounds, so they need to do pro rata. Yeah, how are you different? Are you able to deploy all of your capital or most of your capital relatively early? So, as an example, so like to make it concrete, our second fund is fifty million dollars. We think we'll have thirty, thirty-five investments. Mm-hmm. So, 
let's say we reserved like three to one for follow-on. That means we might be investing, you know, twelve and a half million into thirty-ish companies. So it's like four hundred k a company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what we can do is we can invest four hundred k. Maybe it buys us like three, four, five percent in a company, and then we have a bunch of money, like three to one, uh, reserved for future financings where we might get diluted, but we have money to prevent that from happening. So. Instead, what we can do is we can say, well, we'll invest more up front. So maybe instead of three to one for follow on, it's one to one. So instead of investing 12 and a half million initially, we invest 25 million. So maybe instead of writing 400K checks, write 800K checks. So now instead of three, four, five percent, we get six, eight, ten. Mm-hmm. And then we can't keep it from diluting for as long, but the initial stake is a lot higher. And then also it's at a kind of a much lower average price. I guess what I'm wondering is why do you follow on at all? If you're if you're price sensitive, if you're trying to get the best returns, why have pro rata reserves? So I am probably more of the opinion that I would just do all fall, uh, all initial checks, but I think that that does limit your fund size a lot because there's only so much you can put in initially. Mm. And I will say, like I think the advantage of a bigger fund is you can hire more partners, you can hire more staff, you can have more services for portfolio companies. So I think there are a lot of things you get from a bigger fund that help you both stand out. Before you make an investment, and then also help after you make an investment. So I think there's a lot of value to that. And then I do think there are some cases where, you know, if you're a lead investor, maybe a company needs a bridge round, and so like you should, you know, be a big part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think having some reserves for that is important. I think sometimes I don't think we've had personal experience with this that much, but you know, companies get recapped or they have down rounds, and you know, they might have provisions where if you're not investing a little bit into the round, you lose all of your preferred shares and they can convert to common. Mm. So I think that would be another case that having reserves would be very handy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it needs to be like two to one or three to one. I think it could be one to one. That's been working well for us so far. Got it. Okay, you're talking about attention. We've explored a little bit on this podcast, which is fund size, right? You're saying that the best returns come from earliest stage investments. But one of the themes that's come up is you can do more with larger funds. You can hire more people, you can invest more in your program, uh, you can do more across your portfolio. And a lot of the investors we talked to talked about kind of their own decision-making process in terms of how big do I want this thing to be. Yeah, so for us, what we were really thinking about is we wanted to have bigger checks where we can raise a bigger fund, kind of take more meaningful positions in companies. But also not not be in a place where we're forced to lead every time because we kind of felt like after our first fund our reputation was growing and in a good place but had a lot more to go and so we didn't want to be in this place where you know we have to write like a 2 million dollar check in a seed round and because we don't have the same reputation as other 2 million dollar check writers like maybe like first round or true mm-hmm. you know we only get to lead if all those other good funds passed mm. so we went from first fund being 25 million and like 2 or 300k checks Second fund being 50 million and maybe like 750k checks, where they're large enough to lead, but they're also small enough to participate. And so I think we tried to deliberately pick a, a size like that where you know we could lead, but we didn't have to. And I think in the future, as ideally as the reputation of the fund uh, and the brand of the fund keeps growing, we can have larger and larger rounds. That sort of you know we think we can get you know the million or million and a half checks in next round, next fund. So we might raise a bigger fund. I was excited to get you on the podcast because you wrote a lot about something that's near and dear to my heart, which is sort of this quantitative evaluation of companies. You've got a series of articles about startups as sort of risk functions and how you might model a startup's value based on how risky it is and its expected returns. 
Where did this come from? Is this something that you came up with or did you inherit this framework? I think it was something that I thought about implicitly for a while. Mm-hmm. And then especially as we had more and more seed stage companies, both that we'd invested in and that we passed on getting to Series A and then sometimes struggling. Mm-hmm. I think that was kind of what made this framework more explicit to me, which is like founders often think there's a magic number or magic target for Series A. Like, oh, if I hit a million in revenue, like all the Series A investors will be excited. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's true, and sometimes you hit a million in revenue, and investors are like, "Well, like you know, it's not quite far enough. I want to see a million and a half." And I think like the the superficial interpretation of that is, "Well, they want to see fifty percent more revenue." But I think the deeper version is like the reason a million's not enough is there's like something there you haven't proven out, and maybe it's that you know you haven't hired any execs, and they want to see that you can hire like a good VP of engineering or something, or. Maybe it's that your marketing is not scalable, and so when they say they want to see a million and a half ARR, what they usually mean is like, hey, I want to make sure that like your marketing is scalable. But they might say it more indirectly through like the revenue proxy. And so I think as I was looking at all of these companies trying to raise a Series A and sometimes succeeding and sometimes not, I think what I saw was when investors passed, they might say it was the revenue or the traction, but they really meant like there's some key risk I'm not comfortable with. And until you solve it, which you know I think will be at a later revenue target, mm. uh, I don't think I'm comfortable investing. So they're actually just deferring the decision. They're just asking for time. I would say sometimes they're just not interested, right? Sure. And so sometimes they'll say like, you know, hit me up when you're at five million because they think you never will be, or right. if you are, you'll have raised already, and like you're not going to hit them up anyways. But I think there's other times where it might be like maybe they explicitly feel like, oh, I want to see you prove out marketing, uh-huh. or maybe it's more implicit where they see you at a million ARR and they're thinking like, oh, this is pretty good, but like I'm just not quite sure, you know, if, like I don't have enough conviction here. And I think that's usually where if maybe if you drill in or if they like really think about it, you know, they'll be able to give you a good sense of why it is that they're not comfortable with the investment. And it's usually related to some risk that's still outstanding. Are you suggesting that VCs? Are thinking about these risks and not voicing them, or that they have just sort of a sense that there's more risk here, and they're kind of bundling this all up into an, a request for more revenue? I think it's a couple of things. I think it's those two, right? Which is sometimes like you might not put a finger to it, but you just think as an investor, oh, like I like this, but it's a little too early. Yeah, and too early is like, you know, it's the same as saying get more revenue. It's like it's kind of a vague thing, but yeah. you know. And maybe you just stop right there because like you're kind of lazy or something, or or it's or you're not really sure what it is that you're looking for. You just know that it feels too early. Mm-hmm. Other times it might be that you know there's some feedback where you can say, hey, I think your marketing's immature. I want to see it proven out. There might be other times where you might say, like, hey, I think you suck at sales. Uh, I want you to hire a salesperson. But that's hard feedback to give to somebody if you've only met them once or twice. So you might just say, like, oh, I want to see the like the sales team grow a little bit. Like, come back when you're at a million and a half ARR. But really, they're saying, "I'm not sure I believe in you as a salesperson, and I want to see if you can hire a better salesperson." When you talk about investments at SUSE, do you talk about risk this explicitly? I think what we often focus on is we focus on what we think the biggest risks are, and so I think like a good analogy is you know maybe triathlons. So triathlon, you have a swim, a bike, and a run. And a lot of times, like in the startup world, you might have somebody that's like an awesome runner and cyclist, but they can't swim. And you know, they might present their seed round as like, "Hey, I'm going to like be even better at running." Right. And it's like, "Well, you're going to drown in the first, you know, on, on the swim leg." So like, you need to fix that gap. Wait, could we use a, an example here? Like, what, what's a what's a swim, bike, run startup story? So I think like the most simple one is actually like a two prong example, which is you know, technical founders building a business. A lot of times. 
there's very little risk in them building whatever they want to build. And the real risk is like, you know, can they manage people if they haven't managed people before? Can they figure out the sales side if they haven't done sales before? And so what I sometimes see is like a really, really sharp technical founding team will raise money. And when investors like investors have full confidence they'll be able to build something, they want to see if that something can be sold. And instead, the founders will take the seed round, they'll go work really hard for a year, and they'll come back and be like, look, we built this beautiful product, we're ready to sell, and we want to raise at like four times the valuation of the last round for a Series A. And the investors kind of look at it and it's like, well, like I already knew you could build it, so you didn't really prove anything to me, or you didn't really like de-risk anything. And so what I really wanted to see is that you could, you know, figure out the sales side a little bit. And so, you know, you actually get way more credit for sort of maybe building like a prototype and then doing a lot on the sales side than building a beautiful product and not doing anything on sales. So I think figuring out what what the biggest risks are, especially the ones you could mitigate maybe in the course of the next round. I think it's something that's important for founders to think about, not just from an investing standpoint, but also from just like growing the business, right? Cuz it doesn't matter how great your product is if you're not selling it, you're probably not going to do very well. But it's also important for investors, both in terms of like what kind of risks are they comfortable with, right? Like some investors are comfortable with team risk, where maybe the team's inexperienced. Others might not be comfortable with that, but they're comfortable with like the product's not live yet, so we don't know if customers want it, or other things like that. So for the investor, it's important to figure out what risks are you comfortable with, and then also whatever stage you're investing in now, the company has to make progress for the next round. So it's figuring out what are the risks the company can address between now and like let's say the Series A. And are those meaningful enough risks to address to get you to a Series A? You listed one common risk, namely strong technical team that hasn't proven their sales execution ability. What are some other common risks you see at early stage companies? One common one is product market fit, right? Which is idea sounds great, you haven't launched it yet, so you know, sort of in theory, it sounds like something customers should love, uh-huh. but you won't really know until you actually. Ship something to them, whether it's like a prototype or an Excel spreadsheet version or an actual product. So that's one risk. Another one might be just around building the team, right? So it could be on the management side, it could be on the recruiting side. So some people are, you know, great recruiters. They've like built teams in the past. Other people, you know, maybe they're like fresh out of college, right? And you can be really impressive, but you know, when you have to go hire like the thirty-five-year-old senior engineer to work for you, and you're twenty-one. Like, can you do that? Mm. And if you've never tried it, like, there's a chance you can and a chance you can't. And if you can't, like, that's a pretty big risk because it's, you know, if you can't hire senior people for your company, like, the company's probably not going to go very far most of the time. You write that it's really important for founders to work on the riskiest stuff. If you've got a proven technical team, work on your sales. If you don't have proven product market fit, get some initial usage. Why is this hard for companies? So I think the biggest thing is, like in my mind, a lot of it's about discomfort. People don't like to be uncomfortable. And so there's like two kinds of discomfort I've seen. One is you really like something and you're really good at it and you don't want to let it go. Mm. And so this might be like, this is probably what I would do if I was a CEO being an engineer is, you know, I like engineering and I'm pretty good at it. And so I'd want to do the coding. But the truth is, like, as the company grows, like the CEO should not be coding. Yes. And like the longer you don't let go of that, the more the company suffers. So that, that's one form of discomfort of like not wanting to let go of the things you're good at. The flip side is you don't want to try things you're either not good at or haven't tried, right? So maybe you've never tried sales or you tried it before and you suck at it. And so you're just like, well, I'll just you know, focus on building the product and the product will be great. And then I'll figure sales out. And the problem is like sometimes it's too late, you know, because maybe you're running out of money and you mm-hmm. haven't proven anything on the sales side and it's hard to get funding. 
how do you coach a founder through that? How do you convince someone to do something that they fundamentally don't like and don't think they're good at? I mean, a lot of times, you know, one is you can try explaining it and, you know, sort of giving this outside perspective of like, hey, as an investor, we already invested, like, we believe in you. But just so you know, like, what I think the later stage investors will really zero in on are these two risks. Mm. And, you know, like maybe it's sales or maybe it's product market fit or something like that. And so we think, you know, these are two high priority things to work on. And you don't have to do them today, but like, you know, if you want to raise, you know, your next round in 15 months, you need to figure out a good answer to these two questions in the next 15 months. So that's one thing that can help. The other thing that can help is sometimes like if you introduce people to others that are way better at something you're not good at, then you realize how not good at it you are. Because I think in the absence of like benchmarks and calibration, it's easy to say, like, well, I'm an engineer, but you know, I'm doing sales at my company. I sold, you know, four contracts this month for 10K each. And so I'm really happy. And like I feel like I'm an A salesperson. And you might be, but like, you know, if you get introduced to an A salesperson and then they're like, oh, you sold four, like in a typical month I sell 25. Uh-huh. Then you're like, oh, I, I guess four is not that good. And maybe it turns out that four is really good, and maybe you are an A salesperson. But a lot of times, meeting others that are really great in the role you're trying to figure out can be a good way to calibrate. Of like, are you actually good at it? You know, if you're not good at it, like based on who you're meeting, do you have the skills to be good at it, or how long would it like take you to learn to be good at it? Is this something you instrument through SUSE? Uh, we definitely try to introduce people to uh, things like that. Especially, I've, I've seen this especially even if you are like very kind of self-aware. Like you might say, you know. I'm a really good technical founder. I'm a really good business founder, but I've never hired like a marketer or a VP of marketing. Mm. And so, like, whether you want to try marketing out yourself or not, you might still want to meet a really good VP of marketing or two just to get a sense of like what are the characteristics. Because part of it is, you know, if you're an engineer and you're interviewing a VP of marketing and you've never done that, you might not even know what to ask, sure, uh, or what to look for. And so, I think just meeting good people in those roles is a really great way to level up, whether it's for yourself or whether it's for your recruiting efforts or something else. Okay, you know, as we're talking about discomfort, I'm reminded of one of your later articles about becoming your future self, where you write about uh, sort of recognizing when you you as a founder are becoming the bottleneck to your own company's growth. I'd love to talk a little bit about that. What happens at that juncture? Well, I, I would say probably the biggest thing is actually if you're not aware you're becoming the bottleneck, because mm. usually if you are. Then you know most people want to move out of the way or like you know figure out how to how to solve the problem because I think you know everyone including myself has an ego and they want to be successful but I think like you can't really be successful if your company fails so I think founders do like put their companies above their own egos most of the time mm-hmm. I think the bigger challenge is just thinking about like what are you doing that you shouldn't be doing or what should you be doing that you're not doing yet and the thought experiment. I've given to some founders that seems to work pretty well is like, you know, maybe right now you're on a five person company or a 20 person company. You know, imagine it's five years from now and it's a 500 person company. Like, what do you think you're doing day to day? You know, like if you're an engineer CEO, like are you still coding when it's 500 people? Like almost certainly not, right? Mm. And so figuring out like what are you doing day to day at that stage and like which of those things are you not doing yet that maybe you should start preparing for or trying to do? And then also maybe what are the things you're doing today that you should stop by that stage? That maybe you can start, you know, delegating or automating or something like that. But trying to think of it in terms of like, here's where you want to be in the future. How can you get, you know, from today to there? Maybe kind of one small step at a time. Are you thinking about these things in terms of 
literally how you're spending your time, or are you thinking about them in terms of sort of like habits, approaches, attitudes? I think it's more on the attitude side, honestly, because I think again, sometimes somebody maybe is like really good at selling, and so they're the CEO, and the company's got you know 15 employees, and the CEO is still selling, like closing every sale, mm-hmm. and like that can work really well for a while, but at some point, like a sales team of one is like. It's going to tap out at some point, right? Like you'll never have more than a couple, like I don't know, two million ARR extra every year from you selling. Sure. And so at some point, it's like you have to think about while well, recruiting salespeople, training them, like hiring a sales VP. And so part of it is just this mental shift of like I know you're closing these hundred K deals by yourself, and it's really rewarding, and you're closing like one every two months. But the longer term view is you're also you're kind of flatlining mm-hmm. because you're never going to close like twenty hundred K deals in a month, but a team could. And so if you think about, you know, where you need to go as a sales leader or a CEO today versus, you know, like where you need to be in a few years, hopefully it's just shifting your attitude to realizing like, well, I can't do all this by myself. So I need to start laying the groundwork for like a team to take this over and hopefully do an even better job. You wrote that there's kind of two choices here, right? You can either firmly decide to evolve or you can gracefully accept that maybe it's time for you to step out of the way. Do you see both of these getting played out in your portfolio? I rarely see people step out of the way. Mm-hmm. At least at seed stage. Like I've seen it more at kind of later stages where people have sort of, you know, maybe they've enjoyed the ride for like four or five years as CTO or CEO, and then they decide, you know, I really want to focus on product or, mm-hmm. or biz dev or something. And so they will maybe step aside into either a chairman role or maybe it's like, you know, they go from CEO to VP of product. Mm-hmm. At earlier stages, what I usually see is people either step up or they don't. And when they don't, they're sort of like, well, you know, I know I need to build a sales team someday. I think I'm doing fine now. Like, I'm just going to keep at it. And then sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. A lot of times, though, like you have to figure out the sales team piece at some point in this example. And so if you never figure it out, it probably means maybe you never raise a Series A. You're just, you know, it's like a lifestyle business, or maybe some company acquires you, or uh, like I think there's other options at that point, Mm. and they're not necessarily bad. But they sort of take you off of the like venture, trying to be a you know a public company someday track. This is interesting because on the one hand, it feels like your the founder's own ego is is an obstacle, can be an obstacle to them building a really large business. Yeah, absolutely. Leo's <laughs> <laughs> like, all right. Um, I'm wondering, is this a thought experiment that you run internally? Are you asking yourself these questions? I do think about them sometimes. I would say, like, one thing I'm not good at is time management. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because you're not the first person to say that in this room. And and I think one of my biggest challenges has been it's like the CEO that can sell by themselves for a while. I've been in this place where I can the time demands of the job have like grown over time. I sometimes joke that you know, like my my number of meetings every week goes up like five percent quarter over quarter. So it's like the hockey stick. And I think I'm maybe now or in the last year hitting this point where I can no longer say yes to every meeting. And so like three, four years ago, like sure, maybe maybe this meeting's a waste of time, but I'm not doing anything, so I'll just say yes. Uh-huh. And then last year it was like, well, maybe this meeting's a waste of time and I have just enough time to do it, so I'll say yes. And now it's like, well, now I have, you know, whatever, fifty hours of requests for thirty hours of slots. So I need to start saying no. And that's something I'm like not that great at. I'm trying mm. to get better at. And I think one thing I do sometimes think about is like, well, right now my fund Susa's got like a decent brand, but if things keep going well, 
right now it's maybe it's like 50 requests for a meeting and 30 slots. Maybe in five years it's like 200 requests. And so instead of being like, well, like you know, these 20 companies aren't a good fit. Like I, I'll meet with the other 30. I think it's a lot harder when maybe there's 170 companies that a lot of them do look at good fits. So I, I think I, I do constantly think about like what can I do better to manage my time better, like you know, pick my meetings better, pick where I spend my time better. Yeah, I'd love to keep running with this experiment. What is the Leo of five years doing differently from the Leo of today? I think it's probably being like more explicit about like, okay, these are areas that I'm like, I'm just not the right investor. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe even being public and just saying like, here are the four sectors I really like, and you know, I look for X, Y, and Z, and if those are missing, then like, it's just not a good fit. So I think that's one direction. I think the thing I don't like about that direction is I do like the serendipity of the business, mm-hmm. um, and I think just life in general, where sometimes something doesn't seem like a fit, but it turns out it is, or like something doesn't seem like a fit and it's not, but you maybe make another connection as a result of the first meeting. Or so I like all of that stuff a lot. So it's hard. I think that's part of why it's hard for me to say no. There's sort of a, a balance between remaining open to possibility and focusing on what you're good at. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think for me it's been especially tough personally because I think a lot of my best life decisions have been more in that serendipity, like being open to things, uh, even though I'm a pretty like structured and methodical person. And so because of like the good luck I've had, I realize it's luck, but I also don't want to lose other opportunities for luck. I read an article recently about lucky people. Did you read this article? I'm not sure I did. What was the article about? The title of the article was something like, luck is a function of remaining open. Mm-hmm. And I talked about all these experiments where they took people that called themselves lucky and they took people that called themselves unlucky and they would run them through the same scenarios where they would like put a $20 bill on the street and the lucky people would pick up the $20 bill and the unlucky people would stroll by it. And I love this idea that luck is actually your ability to remain aware and open to possibility. Yeah, I I don't think I read this article, but I definitely buy into that. And I, I think in my mind it's it's two things. It's one is being open to things, and then two is just like kind of a greater surface area. Uh huh. So maybe it is like the more meetings you take, or the more networking events you go to, or the more blog posts you write, or you know, podcasts you record, or any of this other stuff. Like each one of those is like a little bit more surface area for maybe like your next business partner or the next founder or investor you meet, like to get to know you through one of those channels and then reach out. So let's talk about this because this seems like a fundamental tension in venture. On the one hand. You want massive exposure. You don't know where your next deal is going to come from. You don't know where your next awesome relationship is going to come from. So you just want to be talking to lots of people and keep a really open mind. On the other hand, no one has enough time. And we know that having a really focused thesis allows you to make smart plays in that space. How do you find the balance between those things? I might be delusional, but I think our thesis makes it easier. Okay. Uh, so my fund's focus is on companies that are building things with strong defensibility. So you know, might be something like network effects, could be proprietary data, just some element where as your company grows, it's harder and harder for another company to try to catch up. And I think that's a thesis that doesn't limit us on sectors a lot. So we can kind of look at you know pretty much any company or any business and feel like, well, like if it's a good business, it should be defensible. But on the flip side, if something's not defensible and you know we don't think it will be over time, I don't think we have any regret if we pass. So, you know, the struggle I have is like, are there other filters like that where I think almost no matter what, I wouldn't have any regret if I pass on opportunities of this type. 
And I think the ones I struggle with are the ones where you know half of the opportunity this type might I might not regret, but half I might. And so, like maybe I should just meet with all of them, <laughs> so uh-huh. I don't have any regret. <laughs> so this seems like a very broad thesis. Surely, lots and lots of venture funds are saying we want to invest in companies with strong defensive moats. We want to invest in companies that are difficult to displace. Do you have a more specific version of that, or am I misreading the? No, it's it's a general version. But I think when we talk to people, we want to hear specifics. I think we also want to hear things that are kind of plausible, and we think are are you know like this would be a good moat. And so I'll give you an example of a, a moat that I think is bad. Okay, which is you know sometimes I meet a founding team and I'll say what's your moat, and they'll say, um, well we execute harder or like you know we work harder <laughs> than everyone else. Sure. It's like yeah okay, but like that's not really sustainable. And I bet if you lined up a hundred teams, like there's probably a couple that work even harder than you. So it, like it's both not sustainable and just also like not that special. And also sometimes working smarter is better than working harder. Mm. But so I think if I ask somebody like what makes your business defensible and they say something like I work really hard, that to me is kind of a yellow or red flag. You wrote an essay about the importance of taking time off and how the idea of working hard can be a bit of a trap. Is that something that you talk to your portfolio companies about? I will talk to uh, CEOs that seem to work a lot and like kind of comment that you know they haven't taken vacation for a while um, I'll definitely urge them to like you know take a vacation or if not a vacation then at least a couple of days I think it's it's definitely it's hard to do when your company's like four people and every single person's a single point of failure in like 12 processes yeah but I think if you're like 15 people you know if you can't go away for like four days without the business breaking like probably the business is not doing that great but also I think people, Myself included, sort of like overestimate their importance, mm-hmm. right? So you might think like, oh, the you know my company will never get along without me if I'm gone for a week, and then you're gone for a week, and everyone's like, oh, you were gone for a week, I hardly noticed, right? You know, the long the long view is like, can you stay sane and healthy enough, and like you know, like de-stressed enough to build your company over ten years? And if that means taking you know a week off, like this week or next week, because you're feeling burnt out, that might be a better investment than working through it. But then maybe the company shuts down in a few months because you kind of lose all your energy. I want to come back to this theme of of building your future self. You said that one of the things that Leo Fried years from now is doing differently is he's more deliberate about what meetings he takes. He's just saying no more. Maybe he's doing that through a really explicit investment thesis. What are some other things that you're trying to get better at as an investor? Well, I think part of this is also, you know, delegating is not the right word, but basically like expanding our team a bit more. Okay. Because I think as funds grow, like there's kind of two paths to take, which is you can write bigger checks or you can do more investments. And in my mind, I think both have their appeal. But I also I, I like the direction of doing more investments, especially in areas we don't know well. Mm. So I think you know a lot of my investments tend to be like B two B and SaaS and enterprise. And so I think for us to hire like three more partners to focus on that would sort of be a waste because you know if we see like ten or twenty companies that we really like in those spaces every year. Yeah. It's probably not going to quadruple just because we have four times as many partners looking at the space because we're all kind of looking at the same companies. You wouldn't be mitigating your biggest risk by yeah. hiring more yeah. enterprise partners, exactly. And so, but I think there's a lot of areas like frontier tech, right? Or I think we're okay on consumer, but we could be a lot stronger. And I think there are a lot of areas like that where we could add a partner and have them just look at, let's say, biotech deals mm-hmm. or, or just frontier tech deals. And in those cases, I think. Those would be good time management for me, selfishly, because you know, right now, if I see a biotech company, I kind of feel like it's a space I'm interested in, but don't know that much about. 
So I end up spending some time on it, and occasionally we'll make an investment. But usually, like you know, I'm sort of like spending a lot of time on it because it takes me a lot of time to like and a lot of research to figure things out. And if we had another investor on the team that was an expert in that stuff, I could hand it off to him or her, and then I wouldn't feel like I was missing out. Mm-hmm. But I'd also feel like my fund had like a great shot at this opportunity, and I don't have to necessarily spend my time on it because somebody else is better suited for it. You think we'll see a biotech focused SUSE partner in the next couple of years? I don't know if it would be biotech. Maybe more broadly, something like hard science. Uh, so, like you know, chemistry, physics, bio. It's something I'm interested in. I think it depends on whether we find the right person, and also, you know, we we do need the fund to grow a little bit to to hire another partner or two. But we're interested in hiring another partner or two over time. Awesome, Leo. I ask all my guests the the same closing question, which is, what do you wish you knew going into this? Well, I, I think maybe going back to the earlier topic of all these myths and venture capital. I wish when I started, I appreciated that just because somebody has experience or talks loudly doesn't mean they like have all the right answers. Because mm. I think people have good advice, but I, I think for me, the important thing has been understanding like why people are giving you a piece of advice or like what the story behind it is. And I think in the very early days, you know, I just be like, oh, this VC is really experienced. He or she said I should do X. I'm going to do X. And then you know, it might have taken me a year or two to figure out like, oh, X is not the right fit for me. And I was just doing it because this investor said I should, and you know I, I assumed that it was good advice because they have ten years of experience on me, and so I, I think I think that's probably true for founders too. Like I think investors will say you should do X, and the founders like oh the investor sees all these companies like I should do X. Sometimes founders think that, but a lot of times it's like well the investor has like a very broad view of a bunch of companies, but knows very little about any single space, and you know a lot about your space, and so if your investor is saying like here's how you should sell to whatever like a chemical power plant. Manager, like they've actually probably don't know, and you probably know better than them. And listening to them just because they have a position of like experience is not the right strategy. So I wish I appreciated that a little more when I started in venture five years ago. Awesome, Leo. Thank you so much. This was fun. Where can our listeners find you, and who should be getting in touch with you? So I'm on Twitter at L Polovets, L P O L O V E T S, and then I have a blog at codingvc.com and. Since I've already mentioned I'm bad at saying no to people, I think people can just reach out if they, you know, want to talk about their startup or have a question that I might be able to answer for founders. I think especially like I think my thinking style and writing tends to resonate most with technical founders, but I, I like founders of all kinds. Thanks for listening to this episode of Venture Confidential. Venture Confidential is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out our library. Home to great educational talks by top investors, entrepreneurs, and other industry leaders.